Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, speak to us this evening, we pray, and help us understand this book that we might love you and serve you better. In Jesus' name. Amen. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. So said Karl Marx to his housekeeper before he died, before sort of sending her off uh, to go do something else. But Moses, from what we read in Deuteronomy, would have disagreed. What we have in the book of Deuteronomy are the last words of Moses, a series of sermons given to the generation of Israelites about to enter into the promised land. They're finished off by uh, his pronouncing of blessings on the tribes of Israel, but the main focus of the book is these speeches that he gave. This is what Moses wanted the Israelites to have ringing in their ears as they go in to take the promised land from the Canaanites. And much of the book is really Moses repacking what's happened to their generation and the generation before them in the wilderness. All the events of Exodus and Numbers, uh, lots of them are there in the book. But Moses gives a commentary on them, explaining what those events mean for the generation about to go in as they prepare for the battle ahead in the promised land. So the message, really, in a few words is this. God has rescued you, and he promises you an amazing future, so choose to live for God alone. That's really the message of the book. God has rescued you and promises you an amazing future, so choose to live for God alone. And it doesn't take a genius, does it, to work out how this message applies to us. We have a rescue too, but our rescue is greater through the Lord Jesus. Our future is greater too. It's greater than the land of Canaan, even though it's flowing with milk and honey. Our promised land is the new creation that God has promised us. And the call to live for God is greater as well, in view of such a great salvation and in view of the battle that we face in our Christian lives. And the New Testament authors think that Deuteronomy applies uh, much the same. Deuteronomy is one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. 57 quotes or allusions to Deuteronomy in the New Testament, and many of them by Jesus himself. So when Jesus is in his own wilderness, it's Deuteronomy that he quotes in the face of temptation for the devil as he prepares a battle there. The words of Moses are there to help him be victorious, if you like, in the battles that he faced and the battles that we face. So what does this book have to say? Well, it's structured around three speeches of Moses, also follows the pattern of an old world treaty uh, with stipulations and blessings uh, and cursings at the end. But I want to focus on the message this evening rather than the structure. So it's got four big points, four big themes that we see uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. First of all, a simple message, a simple revealed message, two ways to live. Throughout the book, God, through Moses, lays it out simply for the people of God. You've got a choice to make. Life or death, blessing or cursing. So Deuteronomy 11, 26, see I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. And this is fleshed out in chapters 27 and 28 as the people pronounce blessings and cursings on each other. This is the deal that you have accepted, if you like, this is what God is saying. If they want to be blessed in the promised land, they must obey God. But if they abandon God and his law, they'll be cursed and they'll be thrown out of the land. And really, you can follow these blessings and cursings throughout the rest of the Old Testament. You sort of follow them through. You can see the whole of the rest of the Old Testament story with these blessings and cursings in mind. 
as you see the nation fall apart in the book of Judges, where they keep getting cursed. As you see the nation blessed of David, and you see the blessings start to flow. As you see them eventually sent into exile in the time of the prophets, it was already here in these blessings and cursings right at the end of Deuteronomy. So it's not rocket science. It's not some hidden mystery. What should we do? Or why is this happening? God had set it out right there at the beginning. Trust God and live. Abandon God and die. And in one sense, God can say this through, through Moses. So Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 14. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. He's saying it's not, it's not rocket science. I've set it out here for you. Now, of course, the letter of the law was too hard. We know that, don't we? Nobody could keep the law perfectly. Yet all could trust God. That was the big idea of the law, wasn't it? To trust the Lord God. To have the righteousness that comes through faith. That's why Paul picks this up, the same passage from Deuteronomy in the New Testament. So listen to the, the way he changed, well, changes it, but adapts it and shows it for what it is in Romans 10. So Romans 10, 5 to 10, I think it's on the back of your notice sheets. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend to the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses, is saved. Paul is saying that this, this summing up of Deuteronomy that we find in Deuteronomy 30 is about trusting God. So that's your choice, trust God or don't trust God. Have faith or don't have faith. It was always about faith and trust. It always was, and it still is in the New Testament. Now that faith shows itself in obedience and righteousness. That's what a lot of the book is saying. But it was always the faith that mattered. And the choice was simple, and again, it still is. We can either choose to trust God and live that out, or not trust God and live that out. But Deuteronomy wants us to know what righteous living looks like, what true righteousness looks like. It's really tempting in a book like this to think it's all about rules and regulations, because there are a lot of them, and we'll get to that soon. But even within the book, he wants to reorientate the Israelites and their view of righteousness. So our second heading, real righteousness. We had read to us chapter 6, and uh, chapter 5 has the repeat of the Ten Commandments. So we set out the Ten Commandments uh, as we get in Exodus 20. But then in chapter 6, we read this, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. 
You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What we've got here is uh, something that the Jews did call in, uh, in earlier days and still call today the Shema. Jews repeat that every morning and evening uh, as part of them uh, being a Jew. They would have done in Jesus' day and they still do today. That's a passage they repeat every day, morning and evening. You'll notice there in that short passage as well, you get what Jesus refers to as the greatest commandment. To love God with all your heart, soul and strength. Now isn't it fascinating that when chapter 5 is all about the Ten Commandments, that actually the greatest commandment uh, is there in the chapter that follows. You'd think, wouldn't you, oh, which is the greatest commandment? Perhaps they're asking, you know, is it 1 to 10? Which one? You know, have got a favourite one? 3? 5? 4? But Jesus says, no, this is the greatest commandment. And actually this underlies all those other ones. This is the one that engages the heart. This is behind why we do those other things, why we live this out. Actually, real righteousness is to do with loving God. And this is also what the New Testament says, isn't it? That we're to love God with all our hearts and minds and strength. So what sort of a heart are we to have towards God? Well, in Deuteronomy, and again in the New Testament, we're to have a circumcised heart. That sounds a bit of a weird phrase, because it's not normally what you think about when you talk about circumcision. But a circumcised heart. Deuteronomy knows no other circumcision, doesn't mention circumcision, other than the circumcision of the heart. And really, this is the one that counts. I'll explain what it means in a minute, but here we, here we have it in Deuteronomy 10, 16. Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart, and no longer be stubborn. Or Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Actually, it's talking about something internal there, isn't it? We often think of circumcision as external, and it was treated in that way. But actually, here it's saying circumcision, true circumcision, is inside. Even in the Old Testament, it was never just about outward observances and ceremonies. Real righteousness was about the heart. It was about having a heart prepared for God. So we're to have circumcised hearts, men and women and children. But what does that mean, to have a circumcised heart? Well, it means a heart that has had the great position's knife on it, so to speak. A heart that's had the stubbornness and pride cut away who's had that much-needed heart surgery that we all need because of our dark hearts. And the goal is there that we might love God as we ought to do. That's what it's talking about with why we have our hearts circumcised. The great physician has been at them and has prepared them to love God. We need God to do that work in our hearts. So real righteousness in Deuteronomy, and again in the New Testament, is a matter of the heart. Even though this is a book about rules... Really, it's, it's getting to the heart of things. So don't forget that as you go into the promised land, says Moses. Thirdly, again, a bit of a surprise, one of the themes of the book is grace. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. It's a gift. Throughout the book, Israel are reminded that God's rescue of them was not based on their greatness. It wasn't based on their obedience, but on God's gracious love and faithfulness to his promises. It was not their greatness. So Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people 
that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So it wasn't to do with their greatness. They weren't to think, oh yeah, it's all to do with our numbers, how big we are. No, it wasn't that at all. But it equally wasn't to do with their obedience. It wasn't them trying to be good. It wasn't them trying to be righteous. That's not the reason why God rescued them. So Deuteronomy 9, 4 to 5. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you are going into the land to possess it. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord God is driving them out before you. That he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He then goes on in that chapter to remind them actually how insolent they've been, how rebellious they've been in the wilderness. The next incident he mentions is the golden calf. This is a sort of run up to that. He's trying to show them it's not their righteousness. It's not their obedience that means that God's rescued them. Actually, in the midst of all this talk about obedience and righteousness, there's a reminder that the real basis for this all, the underlying truth, is that it's not about them and their righteousness. It's about God and his grace towards them. He saved them despite their stubborn character. He saved them despite their insignificance. He saved them from his own love and for his own glory. And again, it's not hard, is it, to draw the line to us? God didn't save us for our righteousness or works or goodness. He didn't save us because we're wonderful people who deserve saving. The Bible says he saved us from his love for his glory. He, the creator of the universe, loved us and gave himself for us in Christ. He rescued us despite what we're like, not because of what we're like. But that should give us great confidence before God. See, if God loved us for our intrinsic goodness, what happens when our goodness slips? So I think uh, if you like the TV show Friends, uh, there's an episode with a character called Ursula Buffet and a guy called Eric. And uh, it's very, very different names. They're about to get married, but it turns out that one of them has lied about everything to the other person. She said that she worked for the Peace Corps. She said that she's a primary school teacher. She sort of made out that she's something that she's not. And when Eric finds out, of course, the marriage is off. But actually, it's not like that with God. God knows what we're like. Actually, God knows everything about us. But if he loved us knowing we were bad, and despite that, then he's not shocked when we sin, is he? He's not shocked when our sin comes out in our life. If he's not chosen us for our goodness, he's not going to abandon us when he sees that we're not good. Because it was never about our goodness and uprightness. It was always about his grace. Even here in the Old Testament, giving us what we never deserved, and we still don't. Finally, the final theme, another Moses, a coming king, and a hanged man. Another theme of the book that we see is the promises uh, that God gives to the people of what is to come. And he promises another Moses 
So chapter 18, verse 15. Then the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And it is to him you shall listen. That's the reason why when you get to the New Testament, they're looking for this character called the prophet. And Jesus meets these expectations. Jesus' life shows us that he lived a life like Moses. There are many parallels with Moses. In Matthew's Gospel especially, which we're going to see in some of it over Christmas time, he's portrayed as a new Moses. So think about things around the Christmas story. You know, the murder of his peers when he's a baby by an evil king. Or think about when, uh, later on in his life, Jesus speaks of his exodus with Moses and Elijah during the Transfiguration. And he's pictured as a new lawgiver as he stands on a mountain to give the Sermon on the Mount. What does he talk about? The law. Jesus is that prophet to come, which Deuteronomy talks about. And the book is very careful in guarding this claim. Not anybody can claim to be this prophet. It's also in Deuteronomy that gives stipulations and rules about those claiming to be prophets. If someone claims to be a prophet, but they say that uh, something will happen and it doesn't, then there's be ignored. If they say that the people are to worship other gods, then they're to be killed. But Jesus, when he says things will happen, they happen. And he doesn't call them to worship other gods, he calls them to worship the true God. So Jesus passes these tests with flying colours. There's also the promise in the book of Deuteronomy of a king. Long before Israel has its first king, the book of Deuteronomy tells you about what a king is to be like. Telling them what they should and shouldn't do. And again, by all these rules that are given, Jesus passes them with flying colours. And the king, we read, is to be a person of the law. So the reason, uh, one of the things the king is to do is to make a copy of the law. So uh, Deuteronomy 17, 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, a copy of the law, approved by the Levitical priests. And this is where the book of Deuteronomy gets its name. So Deuteronomy literally means second law or copy of the law. But what it's really showing is that the king was to be a man of the word. He was to know the law. He was to have no excuse about not knowing the law because he was supposed to have written it out. That was supposed to be like job number one when he got on the throne. But Jesus was a king of the word par excellence, wasn't he? Remember the story of 12, he's there teaching the teachers of the law. So he's the king that's looked forward to in Deuteronomy. And then finally, the hanged man. One of the more obscure references to Jesus is found in Deuteronomy 19.23. It says this, His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land, the Lord your God is giving for you as an inheritance. That verse there is picked up in Galatians, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The original reference there in Deuteronomy is to outlaw the practice of leaving dead bodies hanging overnight or indefinitely. In the olden days and sometimes in uh, other countries, they can leave dead bodies out as a sort of warning uh, in places, you know, don't... Uh, don't do uh, something that, don't rebel, don't do things like that, otherwise you'll end up like them. But Galatians picks up the theme of curse. Jesus was hung on a tree, the cross. He was cursed, and in doing so, he took the curse for us. 
so that we might enjoy the blessings spoken of in the book. It's like a giant swap that's taken place. Christ lived a life always in line with the law, always in line with the book. Christ earned the blessings of Deuteronomy at the end, but takes the curses due to us. We who have earned the cursing get the blessing instead due to him. This is a great exchange, a wonderful swap, so that we can read Deuteronomy with these blessings and cursings, but we understand here that they were swapped at the cross. The foundations, though, are laid here in Deuteronomy. Now, there's much more that we could say, but as we think through Deuteronomy, we need to take the lessons to heart that we've seen. We now know the one who this looks forward to, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can know that we're saved by his grace, which he offers us freely. Indeed, by definition, grace is free, isn't it? Paid for at the cross. We also know that real righteousness is a matter of the heart. It shows itself in obedience, but it's motivated by faith. Always was, always will be. And we know that there are two ways to live. To continue in faith, or to turn aside and move on to other things. One way leads to life, the other leads to death. So what's it going to be as we face our daily battles, as we stand on the precipice, if you like, at the edge of the promised land? Are we going to trust God, or are we going to be like the generation that perished in the wilderness that Moses speaks of? Well, I pray that God would help us all to persevere and to enter his rest. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the book of Deuteronomy. Father, we pray that we would avoid the errors of the the generation that went before the generation that were written to here, who died in the wilderness. Father, instead, pray that you would help us to have faith and to trust in you. Father, help us to be like the generation that went in and fought those battles in the promised land and made it into your rest. Father, help us to keep going in the day to day. And Father, thank you for that wonderful promised future that you give us and that wonderful rescue. Help us, we pray, to live for you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.